Welcome to the ninth episode of the FMWC podcast. My name is Camila Alibi and I'm your host. And today I am joined by my classmate and good friend, Sonia Dancy, who is a fourth year medical student at the University of Ottawa. Welcome to the podcast, Sonia. Hey, Camila. Thanks so much for having me. So fun fact for our listeners, Sonia and I actually met at the annual general meeting of the Federation in 2019, and we've been members ever since. Yeah, exactly. And we were even the student leaders for the FMWC Ottawa branch in 2020. Um, and we organized lots of events within our community as well. And that's actually how we met our fabulous guest for the podcast today. And I'm so happy Zonia is here because I know she's especially excited for our guest, who's a total girl boss in the world of women's cardiovascular disease. Yep, you're so right, Camila. I'm fangirling a little bit with our guest for today. We're so excited to welcome onto the podcast, Chief of the Division of Prevention and Rehabilitation, Chair of the Canadian Women's Heart Health Centre, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Ottawa, and an internationally recognized clinician scientist in the field of arterial health. Please welcome Dr. Thais Coutinho. Thank you for joining us. Hi, everyone. I wanted to hear about what it was like growing up in Brazil. You now live in Canada and you've been here for a while, but what was your life like before medicine? Thank you for inviting me, uh, Camila and Sonia. So growing up in Brazil, so I grew up middle-class family in Brazil, which, you know, in a developing country, that's a good advantage to have to just actually be in the middle class. And honestly, never really wanted to be a doctor. I feel like I have told you the story before. I, I People don't believe me, but it's true. I never really wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be in marketing. I wanted to to write and convince people to buy things. And then eventually, on the very last minute, decided to go into medical school because it was so competitive. And I was kind of up for the challenge. Like, you know, pretty competitive. Let's see if I can do it. And then started it, even though I had no interest. You know, and that's the true story. I could be lying to you, but I'm not. So then once I got into medical school, in Brazil, uh, it's a bit different because we don't do undergrad there. Uh, we go straight from high school into university. So I was very young. I, I had literally just turned 17 when I started medical school. So I was a child, pretty much. And the first couple of years, because it's six years for medical school for us, first couple of years, I was just totally lost. I mean, because it was all biochemistry, biophysics, anatomy, histology. And and also just the overall public university environment was very different than the private school environment I had been in before. We were just, you know, so much loser in a way without that structured schedule. So I remember for the first couple of years, I was just very lost. I'm like, what am, what am I doing? But of course, kept studying and taking the tests. And then the, the pivotal moment for me was when I actually started going into the words. Then, because for that for us was in our third year out of six uh, for medical school, and then started going into the wards, and basically they would just say, you know, just go into the wards, just pick a patient, take a history, and then that's how it kind of started. And that's the moment that the light bulb came up in my head that you know I I wanted to be a physician because that part I loved, that part I loved, you know, the talking to people, you know, the the real detective work of trying to understand what's going on with a person, you know, through the history and physical exam. That's when I absolutely fell in love with it. 
And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to stay in, in medical school and, and finish this off. You know, and it's interesting. I, I reflect upon this a lot because I always wanted to go into marketing and I, I was always a very good writer. Uh, my my best grades were in you know my dissertations and, and Portuguese, English and stuff. And nowadays, yes, I'm a physician, but I kind of I write for a living. <laughs> like I'm always writing grants, writing papers, but pretty much trying to convince people on the other hand, on the other side, to give me money to do my study. So in many ways, there's so many elements of marketing that I feel like I kind of brought with me into you know medicine and science. But anyways, that's kind of my path uh, in Brazil. So started with. You know, a, a middle class, very young girl that decided to just be competitive, but then, you know, found herself once she first had contact uh, with patients. Mm, that's very beautiful. Well, it's not definitely not the usual story. Most people probably tell you that they had some family member who had some illness and inspired <laughs> them to, you know, change the world. That was just not me. <laughs> no, so thankfully for my family members, uh, they were not sick. And and I did not have that beautiful story. But it still had a happy ending. So we were also wondering, you mentioned kind of how there's some differences in like how the medical school training is structured in Brazil. Maybe can you tell us a little bit more about any differences that you notice now being in Canada, um, mm -hmm. about how they, you know, train their learners and anything like that? You have to also take into context the the generational difference, right? I you know I, I like to think that I'm young, but I'm not. Uh, I know my medical school years were uh let me think for a moment. I started January of 1999 and finished in December of 2004. Oh my gosh, I'm just aging myself here. So, you know, that that may be a, a generational difference rather than a true countrywide difference. Mm. Country uh, countrywide difference, but but I remember as a medical student, we we were just the, the do it all. We were the 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 minions of the hospital. We made the <laughs> hospital work. And I know I'm talking about a public hospital in a developing country. So Brazil is kind of a weird has kind of a weird situation where before university, the best schools are private. So I went to private schools growing up. Thankfully, I had the opportunity to do that. But then at the university level, the best universities are public, which are really good because you, you study for free. So I, I have no medical school debt whatsoever. But then you're also stuck in a public institution in a developing country when you have no resources whatsoever. I actually have these vivid memories of like trying to get ABGs as a medical student on a patient with an insulin needle because that was the only needle we had in the hospital on that day. I remember patients being intubated on the on the floor on the wards because the ICUs were full and they had these little ventilators, these green things with two dials. It's like what your nightmares are made of. Uh, it was called the Bird Mark 7. Some people are going to listen to this and they're going to have nightmares just remembering. So like, because the ICUs would be full. I remember like running codes with a continuous ECG strip because there's no monitor that works anywhere. So, so all of these things, if you see, if you saw a patient with a, with a big red leg, you know, that's a DVT to prove otherwise, you start to happen because your ultrasound, you may not get it for a month or two, right? So that, those little things um, made it challenging, but also made it fun in a way. And I think it made us really good bedside clinicians 
because we didn't have all of the resources and we were literally the, the do it all of the hospitals. They needed an ECG. We were the ECG techs. We yeah. were the phlebotomists. We were the, you know, getting the ABGs. We were transporting people to x-ray. Like we did all of these things, which, you know, when you're young, it's fun. <laughs> Not when you're old like me, but when you're young, it's fun. <laughs> and I think many of these experiences were really enriching in, in several ways. So I have nothing but the the greatest memories of of my medical school time in Brazil. And I truly, truly believe that the clinical skills that um, I was afforded there were really, uh, really great. Perhaps not only because of the amazing professors, but also because of just the necessity. You you are either a great clinician or you just don't exist (laughs) because, you know, in the public uh, hospital in a developing country, you just don't have the resources. Yeah, it's it seems petty now that when they don't have a size six glove for me because I have really small hands it's the end oh of my the goodness. world <laughs> oh yes no that, those are not things we used to think about yeah <laughs> and rightfully like, so I actually remember being uh, I was rotating through the cardiology wards as a student and I remember having a, a meeting with the hospital I guess it's the equivalent of the, the main hospital administrator at the time and she came to lecture us and all of us working in the cardiology wards. Like, I have told you guys a million times, you are not to order electrolytes unless you are in the ICU every third day. Wow. Right. Yeah. No, it's to that level. Yeah. Wow. To that level. But, you know, somehow we, we may do. Yeah, we may do the patients may do too. So you're talking about the cardiology words. When did it click for you that you wanted to do cardiology as a career? Oh, yeah. So that's another great time to a, a great defining point for me. I thought I wanted to do endo. Uh, I still love endo. I, I just love complexity. Uh, and I and I find obviously endo is super complex. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. But also it was when I was exposed for the first time to cardiology physical exam, you know, and that detective nature of mine uh, really kicked in and I thought it was amazing. And, you know, if you think of a cardiology ward in Brazil, there's so much valve disease. There's so so much rheumatic disease. There's uh, so much endocarditis. There is a lot of shag is still not very incident, but still very prevalent. Uh, so the physical exams are just so florid. And at that moment, I was like, I just love this. And I never, never turned back. And there was also uh, an interesting an interesting story because in, in medical school for a cardiology block, uh, our groups were paired with different cardiologists as, as mentors for the block. And I was paired at the time with the, the head of cardiology. His name is Dr. Nelson Souza Silva. Still to this day, one of the best, if not the best clinician I've ever met. But, but you know, notoriously stiff and 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 demanding of of his students. And I remember during the, one of our early, and that's when I didn't didn't know I wanted to be a cardiologist yet. And I remember one of our early group sessions, and he says, "I will, I will give you group a, this group a challenge." And if any of you get this challenge correct, I will give you uh, 100. So basically, we grade 0 to 100 in Brazil. We don't grade A, B, C. So basically, I will give you a 100 on your cardiology exam for the semester. And I was like, what does he think he is to just challenge me like this? (laughs) 
You know, what does, what, what does he expect? Of course I'm going to do this. Uh, so anyways, the challenge, which I, I have this such a good memory. So the challenge was, he said, what are the similarities between type 1 diabetes and rheumatic fever? Uh, and, you know, now think about this. This is now 2001, maybe, 2001 to 2002. Internet, Google, this is not, you know, we had a little bit of internet, especially in Brazil. And, and we don't, we didn't have the facility of information like we have today. Right. So, but when we had, I had some internet and you, I remember looking and there's nothing out there that would, you could, you could just Google rheumatic fever type one diabetes is not like anything would just pop in for you. But then mm -hmm. I searched and I searched and I searched and I printed, I remember printing a stack of papers and, and looked at all of these things. And I found in, you know, in one set of papers, this common HLA that was similar between kids that develop type 1 diabetes and the kids that develop rheumatic fever. And I came up with this theory after looking at this that perhaps there's some infectious trigger to a predisposed child with you know, a certain HLA. I can't remember the HLA anymore. That... that if exposed to a, to an infectious trigger, would perhaps develop an, an autoimmunity and type one diabetes. And on the other hand, uh, the patients with rheumatic fever that also have this HLA, oh, they also more predisposed to getting carditis and so forth. So, anyways, I, I remember putting together this theory and and came to the end of the term, and all of my colleagues came up with their theories, and the professor was like, nope, 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 no, just dismissing like. And then I mentioned this, and I saw his eyes just pop up, and like oh my goodness, you are the first person to ever get this right. So he gave me the 100 mark and he invited me to then participate in his weekly clinic, which was probably the most transformative part of my formation early on because that exposure to his clinic every week, which I was only now invited to participate in because I got this challenge right and he thought very highly of me at the moment. Um, so, but, th but that exposure was just so transformative because I got to just learn from a master clinician um, uh, on a weekly basis. And, and, and his wife was also a phenomenal physician. And that goes, that starts my link to the Mayo Clinic, which I know you're also interested in. Because this phenomenal clinician that eventually pretty much adopted me as a student had trained uh, in internal medicine and cardiology at the Mayo Clinic in the 70s. And he always spoke so highly uh, of the Mayo Clinic. He always spoke very highly. So uh, because of that exposure to him, I decided to just go check out the Mayo Clinic. So I, I went there as a medical student uh, on a clerkship and I did a month of a rotation. And that's how the whole American dream started for me. Yeah, I love it. And I bet yeah. chat GPD wouldn't be able to figure it out either. They oh my goodness. Did you know, I actually went on whatever chat GPT, whatever that is. I went on it last week and I put my name on it. It did not find it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Out of curiosity, I was like, who is Dr. Thais coaching you? And then the, the, the chat, did have, they had no clue who I was. They're like, that's good. The hidden, the hidden gems aren't on there. See, that's right. That's right. I'm still, I'm still in, hidden enough from from the uh, internet. So now we've like heard a little bit about your your path to cardiology and then training at the Mayo Clinic, and now it just seems like you've done 
so much and have been truly a change maker. So, and it seems like you have so many roles, you know, at the Heart Institute and leading the Canadian Women's Heart Health Center. I guess what's kind of your average week look like and um, like what is the day-to-day life? Thank you for those very kind words, Sonia. So yeah, my week is pretty busy. It's, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. My week is very, is very, very busy. On a typical week, I will have, I'm going to start from the end of the week and then move towards the beginning because my week always ends with two days of clinic. I have a hypertension clinic on a Thursday. I have a, a regular clinic on a Friday, which is rotates between women's heart health, aorta, and general cardiology. And then Monday to Wednesday, I will often have an echo lab day there. And then the rest of the time is admin and, and research time. So that those times are going to be typically filled with meetings, lots and lots and lots of meetings <laughs> based on all of those administrative roles that you cited up front. Because there's so many, especially the Canadian Women's Heart Health Center has grown so big now. And there are so many projects either already happening or starting or things that we are contemplating applying for. So there are always a ton of meetings uh, surrounding the women's heart health topics. And then whatever is left of that, I use for research. So that was me today. I was doing research. So a lot of the, a lot of these things and the days tend to be, tend to be quite long. I have two little ones too, as you may know, a three and six year old. Uh, and I have just a really supportive husband who's also very busy, but more flexible than I am that allows me to have this hectic schedule because otherwise, I mean, he was gone for a week uh, helping his father over in, in the East Coast. And oh my gosh, I have to be alone with the two little people and and all of these the, all of these work duties. It was it was quite interesting. So anyways, I, I get a lot of a lot of help uh, from my partner uh, to allow me to to do the things that I that I need to do professionally. And I have very understanding kids that despite their very young years, they have grown to understand that that's what mommy does. You know, and my daughter, even when she was not even a year old, she would be on a computer typing up that I got to work. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she used to say whenever she started speaking, she was also saying that she wanted to be a heart doctor. Uh, so, you know, they, they, they understand that that's, that's mom and it is, it is what it is. Uh, so it's uh it's very helpful to have this kind of understanding and support at home so we can actually move everything along at the same time. It just sounds like you've really created this amazing balance too, like an incredible career, having such a wonderful family and also taking care of yourself. And like, I see that you love your Peloton and exercise too. I guess, how do you like balance it all and manage it all? Yeah, thanks, Sonia. So I think you're right in a few parts. I do have a wonderful family. I do love my Peloton, but I don't think you're right about the balance. I honestly don't feel like I have it. I don't think anybody really has it quite perfectly figured out what the true balance is. Um, I feel like the balance tips over work the far majority of time. And I wish I wish I could find ways to balance it better. But it, it's, I mean, this career that we're all pursuing is very demanding of us as people, right? So we are here to serve others and to give our time and our energy to to others. And then you throw in the scientist and administrator pieces to that. It just compounds. So I don't think I really have a balance, but I have 
I have a routine, I guess. And and for me, that's what helps the most is to, I, I do not function well without a routine. I feel like I have my best, my I'm, I'm my best at everything, all of the aspects of my life when I have a routine down. So at the moment, my routine is I'm up at five in the morning. I sleep in my workout clothes. Okay. So this is some, some tips for you here because <laughs> I do not want any one second wasted in my day. So I go to sleep in my leggings and my tank top and my shirt and socks. All I have to do in the morning is literally get up, get a bottle of water and get to my basement. Then I would exercise for about an hour um, and all this before the kids are up. And I actually really enjoy that time because it's the only one hour of the day that is mine only. It's my hour. So I'm doing the things that are important for me. They're good for my physical health, of course, but also good for my mental health. I truly disconnect. I meditate at the end of my exercise. And really, I, I really think it helps set the day right. And also because if I don't do it at five in the morning, I would not do it at all because there's just no other time. Then from there, I you know it's work and I, I, I also have try to find ways to help focus my day and prioritize my day because it's so much information and so many requests, so many things happening at the same time that I personally found it helpful to set a list of priorities for the day. Like I have one priority of the one thing that I absolutely must do today. It could be as simple as read 45 echoes or it could be as simple, a different, as complicated as, you know, submit a manuscript revision, but I will have, the one big thing for the day, and then I'll have a list of other little things that I still need to do, but I won't be as upset if those get bumped, right? So I kind of organize my my day like that. Uh, and then some days end at 5 p.m., some days end at 10 p.m. It depends on what the what is the load of the day. And then home, if I'm lucky enough to be home to have dinner with the family and put the kids to bed I would do so and then I'm I try to be asleep by 10 ish so I can be up at five in the morning the next day again and start it all over again so that's my that's my routine and I feel the best like this I don't think I like I said it's not really a balance but it's a way that I kind of go through I go through the day and and I also try to kind of plan once a month I write my plans for the month uh what do they say that a, a goal without a plan is just a wish. I think there's something like that, right? So yeah, I just feel like you just have to just plan things on in the kind of the intermediate term and, and just go after them. Otherwise, if I don't have this, this kind of routine for planning, then I just don't accomplish anything. Then I'm grumpy <laughs> and then, you know, and then nothing gets done and uh, it's just not good. But anyways, that's my, that's my little day to day. It's nothing special, but that's how I get, I get by. That's awesome. I I hope one day I'm as regimented and disciplined as you. <laughs> well, I think all of if you're in medical school, by definition, you're regimented and disciplined, <laughs> right? Some more than others, but I don't think you would have gotten into where you are right now if you did not have some form of regimen and discipline in your life, in your other, you know, your life ethic and work ethic. My treadmill wouldn't say the same, but you know, you win some, you lose some. Are you one of those people that make a treadmill into a clothes hanger? No. 
<laughs> well, least, don't do that. No, it's not. It's not. But it just doesn't get used as much as it should. Well, let me tell you this. Since we're talking about exercise, exercise is the fountain of youth, okay? So I study I study arteries for, for a living, for a research living. I, I study the, the health and function of the aorta, which is really a barometer over overall cardiovascular health and aging. So I always like to brag that I'm 41 years old, but my aorta is in her 20s, okay? Because I've checked. I, I, that we, we, we have ways to, to calculate at your age. And I would tell you the number one way to decelerate the natural aging process of the arteries, especially the aorta, which is something we all go through, the best way to decelerate that is habitual exercise. I, I have studied thousands of people, and once in a while, there'll be someone in their 70s whose aortas, the aortic function parameters will be like a 35-year-old, and the common denominator is always habitual exercise. And unfortunately, once you have, once your aorta has aged and stiffened, we, you cannot reverse that very much at all uh, or very easily. As of today, we don't have any good ways to reverse the aging. So prevention and truly is the key. So here's some lesson for you. In, get the exercise priority. You know, just fit it in. And just think about this for a moment. Like 30 minutes. I'm like, okay, 30 minutes of my day. Oh, my gosh. How am I going to find 30 minutes of my day to exercise? Then you go on your device. And you open your Instagram, Twitter, whatever, TikTok, whatever you're into. <laughs> then you're like, oh, my gosh, 30 minutes. Where did that time go? Like, you just get sucked in into yeah. it. So get sucked into something that is actually productive for your body and your mind. So that's my my advice to you. So, you know, don't get sucked into the phone. Get into that treadmill. Find a little time. 30 minutes is all you need. Your body in 20 years from now, in your mind, we will deeply, deeply thank you for that. And I'll thank you. I'll call you up and I'll I'll ask you to check my aortic health. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. It's actually fun. And, and uh, I, I joke about it, but we can because we do have normative values for aortic uh, stiffness parameters based on age. So if we know somebody's aortic stiffness, we can back calculate their age. So basically, the parameters of my aortic stiffness are equivalent of the aortic stiffness of a 20-some-year-old, even though I'm 41. So that's how, how we know these things. Yeah. It's actually quite motivating. I, I can imagine, especially with yeah. the competitiveness. I can imagine it's like quite encouraging. Yeah, no, I, I always think about my aorta at these times because for us women, as you know, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer for for us in the world and so many of the diseases that will kill a woman can be prevented in in you know a healthy diet and habitual exercise are just so powerful in preventing so many of these things it can prevent hypertension it can prevent um dyslipidemia it can you know improve glucose tolerance and those sometimes are the roots of so many cardiovascular diseases so it truly is it truly is the fountain of youth yeah. So speaking of women's cardiovascular health, so, mm -hmm. you know, in your work with the Canadian Women's Heart, Heart Health Center, what mm -hmm. have you learned, you know, in being the co-chair and with all the initiatives that you've run over the years now? So with the, with the, being the chair of the Canadian Women's Heart Health Center 
has really taught me a couple of things. One, I feel like women's heart health and its nuances are like the medicine's best kept secret. And I don't know why. Because I feel like some of us that work in this field know a lot of what's going on. But then outside of this niche of very interested people, it is really a really wide gap of knowledge. Um, so and, and it's not like there is no science. Yes, the science lags behind, lags behind in women as compared to men. We know that. But there's already a lot of science about women's cardiovascular health. And and why is that not being thought and consumed in greater levels? It's still a puzzling to me. And that's something that I've noticed more and more in, in this world. The other thing that I have also learned through the Women's Heart Health Center is that we, we launched in 2018, I believe, the uh, Canadian Women's Heart Health Alliance, which is, I believe you're, uh, both of you are members, right? You're right? I, good, good. Yes. Because <laughs> uh, I've seen your names on, on the on the list. So so we launched the Canadian Women's Heart Health Alliance, which, as, as you know, is a it's an, it's an alliance for knowledge translation to really raise awareness and, and bridge practice and knowledge gaps about women's heart health. And what I have noticed is that the people like yourselves and all other alliance members that are interested in this field, my goodness, these are passionate people. You know, these people will save the world if you give them a mission because they are just so passionate. Imagine this, like this is an alliance. We have over 150 people now uh, that are members. And this includes trainees like yourselves, cardiologists like myself, other uh, other types of uh, physicians, nurses, uh, researchers, policymakers, and a lot of, of women who live the experience in cardiovascular disease. So all of us. And these are people that are taking time out of their busy lives without a paycheck and dedicating that time to advance the cause, right? And how much it has accomplished in the in a few short years is amazing. So I have learned that if you need anything done and done right, Get a person interested in women's heart health to just solve the problem. And they, I, I think the magic is so many of us that are interested in this and motivated to change it have always been working fairly, very much in a siloed way. Like, you know, in hospital X, there's this doctor in hospital Y, there's this nurse. And, and now we all found each other in this alliance and we work together and it's just, just so catalyzing and motivating. Anyways, I have been really, really inspired by by everyone. So I think those are some of the, the 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 main takeaways. And I guess the third one would be just how much more work still needs to still needs to be done. And here in Canada, I'm convinced that we need a national strategy. Uh, we are now starting to engage with politicians and hopefully can get this conversation started because. You know, it's great to have 150 people across the country working together some on some of these topics, but change will only be made in a deep, wide, and meaningful way when it comes from above, uh, right? So when it comes from above, when there's policy around, when there's money around policy to help the change, uh, I think that that's when Canada is really going to see the greatest changes for the health of women. So hopefully, I, I, I won't be physically here, but hopefully still involved uh, in many ways to help uh, see that change happen. My goal is when my daughter, who's three, 
is an adult, we won't be talking about these things anymore. It would be a thing of the past. So here's my here's my mission. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of great change being done. And Camilla and I saw that um, your team got a pretty awesome grant from the Public Health Agency of Canada. So it looks like people are kind of starting to notice and politicians are getting engaged and there's there's money being put forth. So I guess maybe could you tell us about um, where you see this funding going and what kind of future directions there are for the Canadian Women's Heart Health Centre? Yeah, so this grant, we are so excited about it because we really see it as the first seed for something that could be really big and, and changing. So the Public Health Agency of Canada had a call for proposals for a design phase uh, project uh, with the goal of preventing chronic disease. Uh, and they had this emphasis on special populations. So Dr. Karen Mullen and I, I remember, because she, she lives here in my neighborhood, so we met, this is during the pandemic, so we decided to meet for a walking conference, the two of us, that was very productive because we walked all around the neighborhood because at that time we couldn't meet anyone indoors. So we were just outside walking and we just brainstormed, 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 and we came up with this idea. So probably the most productive meeting I've ever had. Then we, for this design phase proposal, we proposed to design a national network to systematize and and really improve prevention and care for cardiovascular diseases in women. And this sounds pretty simple, but it isn't. Like, think about this for a moment. Think about, I'm just going to give the example of breast cancer, because most people think health disease in women, breast cancer is, is such a common thing. Think about breast cancer. Like, if as a woman, if you get into the age of your screening mammogram, you're getting a letter in the mail to get your screening mammogram. Your doctor is getting a letter that, you know, Thais is ready for her mammogram or whatever. And the, the doctors get financial incentives, actually, also for performing adequate and timely screening for, for cancer on all of their patients. Let's say now a patient goes, get their screening mammogram, which, you know, everybody's incentivized to do. And they screen positive. There's now a system ahead of them that is fairly seamless in a way, especially for the family doctor where screens positive, you know, referred for the next imaging, biopsy, cancer center, kind of these things just flow, right, in such a way. And then think about now cardiovascular diseases, which are indeed the number one killers of women. They will kill more women, five times more women than breast cancer does. What's the system for prevention? Like you, the basically it, it is at the hands of the primary providers to remember that oh I need to check a cholesterol, oh I need to check their blood pressure, oh I need to act on this. But there's no system, so that's why we want to to create with this grant. So it's a like I said, it's a design phase grant. So we would involve think tank with multiple stakeholders from all walks of life, and you're welcome to join. And then we're also doing systematic reviews to try to understand, first of all, if there are already any programs for systematic screening for cardiovascular disease and risk factors for women out there. And also to also another systematic review to find successful screen, screening uh, programs that exist for other diseases that could potentially be simulated. So all of these things are going to be part of this grant. So that based on the all of these pieces, we're going to then design what could be this network for the screening 
prevention and, and care of cardiovascular disease in women. So if the design phase is successful, then the next stage there will be uh, a call for proposals for the uh, implementation. So then, you know, if we can design this right and we can get the implementation funding, then that would be amazing, right? That can transform. And I've had, because we work with so many patients in the Women's Heart Health Center, uh, which is actually one of, our, in my opinion, one of our greatest strengths is this connection that we have with the women we live the experience and how they help inform so many, so many of the things that we do. But I remember when we, we communicated to some of our close patient partners that we have received this grant, their reaction from them is, oh my goodness, you are going to change everything. They were like, their reaction was just so priceless, which, you know, it's amazing because we do this for them, for us too, because we're women and we also want to prevent disease in us, but we, mostly we are doing this for them. And, you know, it was just a, an amazing uh, response. So anyways, that's our public health agency of Canada grant. Uh, we're going to have a think tank later this year. The systematic reviews are in progress and it could be the beginning of something really big. So stay tuned. We're staying tuned. All right. <laughs> and so now, I mean, I think it's Ottawa, the, the Heart Institute is mourning because you will be heading off to the Mayo Clinic. It's bittersweet, I'm sure. What What are you about to, you know, take on? What's that next chapter going to look like? What's your role going to be at the Mayo Clinic? Yeah, I think bittersweet, Camilla, is really the right word and the word I've been using. And bittersweet and heavy heart are my two words du jour. I had to turn in my resignation letter yesterday, and it, that was a, kind of a painful experience because because the Heart Institute, Ottawa, Canada, have been just so good to me uh, as as a person and as a professional. It has given me wings, really, and opportunities, and I, I'm just eternally grateful. So it is it is sad in many ways to live this amazing place. But, I, you know, I will be gone, but it's not like I'm not going to be working with, you know, these collaborators. My grants are still going and and I'm going to continue, of course, working closely with colleagues and hopefully establishing bridges. But but the next chapter is, you know, at the Mayo Clinic, which is kind of a, a, an interesting development because it's been 10 years since I left. So I get to come back now, but in a in a different role. And when I go there, I will be, of course, still doing clinics, still doing echo, still uh, doing research, but also I'll be directing their Center for Aortic Diseases. And I'm really excited about that. And don't think that the Women's Heart Health piece is missed or ignored, because if you've have ever read any of my papers about aortic disease, it's always a sex-based something. Uh, you know, I, I was doing statistics this morning. It, the the sex-based angle, the Women's Heart Health angle continues very strongly from the aorta perspective, both from a structural aortic disease perspective, but also the functional aortic disease, which is really what I what I love most. Nonetheless, uh, so that's going to be what I'm going to be doing there. So I'll be really helping elevate the the profile of the of the aortic program and really create something that's very multidisciplinary. And uh, really, really excited about that. Mayo is a very special place. In many ways, I feel like I never left. I mean, it's the kind of place that you really create roots. And I've stayed in, in close touch with many people. But you'll be excited uh, to come back uh, with this role and, and really be able to catalyze some of these initiatives that I have been conceptualizing and working on. But yeah, very, very bittersweet. We, we love Ottawa. We love our home. 
We love our neighborhoods. We love the Heart Institute. You know, it's uh, it, it's going to be a tough a tough move to do to make uh, later this summer. And then really just to wrap it up, Ottawa will miss you so much. And I think Camille and I are kind of going into our next chapters and starting residency and thinking about a lot of these things and how do we see our career and uh, what our future holds. And um, a lot of women like you, uh, powerful physicians that are so passionate and leaders and innovators um, are just truly inspirations. So we are wondering, what advice do you have for the next generation of women in medicine? Thank you for saying that, Sonia. First of all, good luck on your CARMS match. I'm sure you will get the, the match of your dreams as you deserve it. I think my, my advice to you and all other uh, women and female trainees is just, first of all, do what you love and don't let anybody tell you you can or cannot do something, right? Because you know, as a cardiologist, this is a, this is a, a man's world in many ways it's definitely changing but it's still predominantly male and and it's so easy to find yourself you know into a certain stereotype or a certain corner so don't let anybody tell you what you can or cannot do only you know that uh and just do what you love because you know this is a lifelong commitment like if you decide to do a b and c because you think it's better for you or as a woman or it's whatever and then you don't really love it I mean then you have a life of torture ahead of you right you need to love it it's like I said it's a it's a very demanding career so you need to be 100% in sync with your career to be able to really move it forward and thrive so I think that's that'll be my my main advice and there's really nothing out there that we cannot do as women, it doesn't matter what people try to say. Uh, and I think, thankfully, especially here in Canada, the landscape is changing. There's so much more work now uh, and also much many more voices behind to really change the landscape of the medical training uh, for women and also the career choices. But just just keep that in mind. Do what you love and don't let anybody else tell you what you can or cannot do. And then I personally never really had female mentors, I have to say. My mentors were men, but they were, you know, amazing men that that saw the potential in me regardless of whether I was a man or a woman or whatever. But I think nowadays it's always very helpful too to find female mentors too that can help you navigate some aspects of life and career that perhaps only we go through or we go through in a in a separate in a different way right i mean a man will never be pregnant so you know there are some things that that learning from somebody who has gone that route has done that uh, and can teach you the steps of how to navigate it successfully uh is always a good a good partnership uh to have and thankfully with the federation i mean there's no shortage of amazing female mentors for all of you to hook up to you're all going to be perfect you're going to change the world you 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 know you're you're so motivated uh, i'm just so excited that uh, to see you know all of you uh, in the federation you know be so engaged not only engage in your own development but also in your peers right because there's so much support for each other so that would be that would be very helpful for all of you Thank you. We we look up to the the people like you, right? Who've kind of 
made it a little bit easier to do what we want to do and not second guess it. So we're very grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that wraps up our ninth episode of the FMWC podcast. If you're interested in learning more about women's cardiovascular health, please take a look at our show notes for some interesting links and to get involved with cardiovascular health within the Federation. I'm Camila Alibi. Thank you for joining us. Until next time.